Pastor Doug and I felt that that, as we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, really captured uh, in a different art form, obviously, but captured Colossians very well. I do invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3. We're getting close to the end of our series. Paul's letter to the Colossians, to make it very simple, is a reminder that churches quickly get off track. And they have done so throughout church history, and they continue to do so. It's possible for any church, our church, any church, to quickly derail. And what happens is that they fall captive to a false gospel and a false Jesus, counterfeit Jesus. Two of the most popular counterfeit Jesuses at the moment, not the only, but two of the most popular right now in our culture. You saw the one. False Jesus, the counterfeit Jesus of the prosperity gospel, that he came simply to dump riches on his people and promise constant, unending affluence and prosperity. The other current false Jesus that has captivated so much of mainline Christianity right now is the Jesus who is an LGBTQ revolutionary. And we see that with churches putting rainbows out and all this kind of thing. That's only two. If the Lord tarries for several hundred more years, there'll be many more counterfeit Jesuses that come along. Here is the danger. Young people, hear this. The danger of a counterfeit Jesus, of a counterfeit gospel, because Paul reminds us there is one several times, but especially in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, be careful. There is another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel, meaning there are counterfeits out there. Here's the great danger of a counterfeit Jesus. He cannot rescue you from your sins or judgment and hell. Secondly, he cannot deliver on his promises to God's people. That's just a couple of the tremendous things that are at stake in a false Jesus and a false gospel. So Paul's agenda in Colossians, as we've been seeing, is simply this. He wants to set the record straight on who Jesus is, on his resume. And so he begins in chapter 1, as we've seen, laser-focused on the resume of Jesus using a whole bunch of indicative verbs. You say, what are those? We've been talking about these. These are verbs of statement of fact. All these great theological truths. They're not commands. They're simply stated as tremendous facts about who Jesus is, who he is as creator, firstborn of all creation, the focal point of creation. And then secondly, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, these indicative verbs are followed by heaps of imperative verbs. These are statements of command. In fact, there's about 29 commands given between chapter 2, verse 6, and chapter 4, verse 6. And we said this follows Paul's typical paradigm. You see this in Romans, you see it in Philippians, you see it in Ephesians, where Paul heaps up lots of indicatives statements of fact, doctrine, and then serves heaping helps of imperatives. This is true, therefore this. And his point in all of this is this. Genuine saving faith. Not just anybody who says they're a Christian, but I'm talking about someone who's truly converted and born again. Genuine saving faith leads to treasuring Jesus and obeying his commands. Not perfectly, but there is a growing trajectory of righteousness and holiness in the lives of those who are truly born again. This weekend we come to Colossians 3. 
Paul is continuing with imperatives, and here he comes to a section where he's talking about human relationships. And he's going to talk about two specific areas. These are extremely practical for all of us here. Whatever our status, whatever our marital status, whatever our age, whatever our gender, this is highly applicable for the people of God. Paul's going to talk about relationships in our home and relationships to those in authority. So first of all, relationships in the home, starting in verse 18, he will talk about God's will for wives, God's will for husbands, God's will for children, and God's will for fathers. And so we're going to take them right in that order, beginning with verse 18, God's will for wives. However, let me put a bookmark there for just a moment. Before we dive into this, I need to take a step back and say just a couple words about family and marriage. Because of our current cultural climate, and when I say that, I mean the velocity, the speed of the current moral revolution to completely overturn and redefine all traditional concepts of marriage and the family. It becomes almost unfortunately critical that pastors and leaders regularly have to restate and redefine, you know, not redefine, but clarify what marriage is and what it's not. <clears throat> because it is getting redefined every week, every month, through legislation, through op-ed articles, through school curriculums, it goes on and on and on. So I want to do that this morning because we are right in the thick here in this section of talking about God's will for the family, for marriage, for husbands, for wives. And so I'm going to take a step back and go back to Genesis for a moment and just remind us, I don't know where you're at spiritually, and you may not like everything I'm going to say. My goal is not to tickle my ears or your ears with what we like, but what does Scripture say? To say it kindly, to say it uh, gently, but to say it clearly. What does the Bible say? You go back to Genesis, it's very clear. There's only one definition of marriage, and it's the one God did, the one God wrote, it's the one God invented. One man, one woman, in union for life. That is the only definition of marriage recognized by God. And unfortunately, like I said, you've got to keep saying this over and over. Let me just give a little historical perspective. Because we forget. We get mired down in our lives and we forget. It was only in 2001, on world history stage, that's a blip. It was only in 2001, young people, only in 2001 that same-sex marriage became legal anywhere on planet Earth. That's a blip on the radar screen of human history. That doesn't mean there wasn't homosexual relationships throughout history. There was, but it was never codified and sanctioned as some form of marriage until 2001 in the Netherlands, of all places. And then in 2004, it became legal, so to speak, in the U.S. in the state of Massachusetts. That was in 2004. And then that was followed in 2015 when our Supreme Court handed down its decision, Obergefell versus Hodges. And in that, the US, they ruled, the Supreme Court ruled, and you have to understand it, was, it wasn't a law per se, they ruled that the U.S. Constitution protected the rights of same-sex couples to marry under what they said was the 14th Amendment. And so that's where they, that's where they used for justification. Interestingly, if you look at Asia, Taiwan, just three years ago, became the very first country in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage. So we're talking brand new on the world stage, all of this, 
just in the last 20, 25 years. It's all brand new in his redefining all of this. And now both the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate are passing versions of a bill called Respect for Marriage Act. Have you seen it? Respect for Marriage Act. Friends, it is very important for pastors to be clear on this. Gracious, to be kind, but to be very clear. The Respect for Marriage Act right now that was passed in July by the House and this last week by our U.S. Senate is anything but respect for marriage. The goal of it is to codify same-sex marriage. I got online this week. I looked at the text of Respect for Marriage Act. The first thing it does, or one of the very first things it does, is it openly repeals the defense of marriage act. Are you familiar with that? That was only in 1996. Only in 1996, and it was passed overwhelmingly. You can go online and look, by the U.S. Congress. 1996, DOMA, as it was called, Defense of Marriage Act, under President Clinton, it banned the federal U.S. government from recognizing same-sex marriage by limiting, this is language, the definition of marriage to the union of a man and a woman. And it said the federal government cannot recognize a same-sex marriage, even if it was performed legally in some state, the federal government cannot recognize it. That was the Defense of Marriage Act, passed overwhelmingly by Congress only in 1996. The new Respect for Marriage Act that's on the table at the moment, waiting to be signed, requires the federal government to recognize the validity of same-sex marriage as long as the marriage is valid in the state it was performed in. And so what am I saying? In less than 30 years, in less than 30 years, our Congress has absolutely done a 180 at a speed that is unprecedented in Western culture. And so I say gently, I say kindly and respectfully, but I say it clearly, shame on our U.S. Congress for what they are doing in redefining marriage. Because all they're going to do is damage our culture and invite the judgment of God. We need to be a loving church. We need to be a kind church. But we also need to be a people that tell the truth. And we have to be clear about what marriage is. That brings us then to Paul talking here. And he's very clear about the role of husbands and wives. And I'll just say, I don't know of any marriages that are healthy that don't follow this blueprint, quite honestly. So what is it? Well, first of all, Paul tells us God's will for wives, and it is this. It's in verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. The other letter we're going to dip into, and I would encourage you to keep either a bookmarker there or your finger there, is we're going to go back and forth to Ephesians chapter 5 and chapter 6 for a few minutes because Paul wrote both letters under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and they are... They, they serve in tandem. So go back for a moment to Ephesians 5, <clears throat> 22, chapter 5, verse 22 to 24. Wives, Paul writes in verse 22, Ephesians 5, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife. Verse 23, even as Christ is head of the church's body and is himself its savior, 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The same exact thing is picked up by Peter in 1 Peter 3. If you look at the word submit, whether it's in Ephesians 5.22 or in Colossians 3.18, same word, it comes from a a Greek military term that means to fall in rank under an authority. Now, let us be clear what it means, what it doesn't mean. Submission does not mean that a wife is somehow intrinsically inferior in any way. The Bible never teaches that in any way, shape, or form. The Bible is extremely clear that, I'm going to use a philosophical term here, but it's a very important term, ontologically. That means rooted in the nature of being, rooted in reality. The Bible is extremely clear. Men and women stand on absolutely equal footing before God. That's true in the culture. That's true in the family. That's true in marriage. That's not what submission is talking about. Submission is about how authority operates in a relationship. And Paul gives us this explanation in Ephesians 5, verse 23. Here is, and he doesn't give the why in Colossians. That's why I'm going over to his letter in Ephesians 5, 23. Here is the reason for the submission and the command. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself his save, the Savior, its Savior. That's why, that's the, that's the rationale behind it. If you look at the word head there, it's drilled down to more. Ephesians 5.23, for the husband is head. That is a Greek word, just simply kephale is a pretty common word in the first century comes from ancient Greek literature, and it simply means one who has authority over. So according to the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, young people, whether you're married or not, we need to get this, because we're going to talk to husbands in just a minute. The key role of a wife in a marriage is unconditional respect for her husband. That's the Bible's definition. Unconditional respect. You may ask, well, what if a husband's not respectable? Paul doesn't deal with that. He does talk to husbands forthcomingly, and frankly, and I'm going to get that in a minute. Gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts, it's coming. Okay? But that's not the point. The point is, I'm not responsible for my spouse's reactions. I'm responsible for mine. And I'm responsible to fulfill my role in the marriage. Paul's very clear about that, and the wife's role is unconditional respect for the authority God has placed in her husband. And submission means a respect for the authority God has put there. It's a God-given thing that God has put in a husband to protect and provide for a family, his family. It means that God has placed in a wife a desire to be led and nurtured and loved and protected by a godly man. That's what it means. Gentlemen, our wives hunger for us to be their shepherd and their protector their leader, their shepherd, their spiritual leader and protector. I remember at Promise Keepers, one of the very first ones, if you know what that is, I was out at Folsom Stadium, Colorado in Boulder. Dr. James Dobson got up and he just looked at us and he said, men, your wives are desperate for you to come back and be their spiritual leader and protector and to love them and cherish them. One last thing about this. The Judeo-Christian worldview, and I, this, this is another one of these perspective givers, okay? 
As you look at cultures in world history, and this goes against such, so much of the cultural narrative at the moment, so I'm setting that aside because so much of it is a lie. The, if you look at the Judeo-Christian heritage, hands down, it is the most female-affirming worldview in history on our planet. And Rodney Stark, one of my favorite writers, sociologists at Baylor University, points this out in a number of his books. He says, when you survey cultures and survey world history, you will find no culture, no world religion that esteems women like Christianity. And he says it goes back to Jesus because Jesus treated women better than any other religious leader. And it goes back to him. And I mean, it all goes back to him. Jesus elevated women. You see this in the Bible to a status unheard of in Western culture unheard of in the Greek or the Roman Empire. Jesus elevated women to a status unheard of in Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism. None of them can hold a candle to the way Jesus elevated women. That brings us secondly to God's will for husbands. Gentlemen, fasten your seatbelt. We'll be gentle, but we'll be direct here. Talking to myself, I am under this just as much as you are. There's no difference. I am under the word of God. I'm under the authority here. So are you. So what is God saying to us? Well, Ephesians 3.19. Let's look what God says. These are his inspired words. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This doesn't say this is the way I always operate or you always operate. This is telling us what God expects and what God commands of us. Very clear here. So if a wife's role is unconditional respect, the phrase that sums up our role as husbands, unconditional love. I want you to go back to Ephesians again, where Paul uses three times the ink talking to husbands as he does wives here. Ephesians 5, verses 23 and following. Talks about the husband as the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, verse 24, so wives should submit to everything in her husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's quite a love. And gave himself up for her. That's called the total sacrifice. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So if a husband is tearing down his wife, what he's really doing is self-destruction. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So, wives, our role is, or the role of wife is unconditional respect. Role of husband is unconditional love. To cherish his bride, to shepherd our bride, to treasure our bride, to nurture our bride, and to honor our bride. And again, it doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, but it does mean if I'm converted and the Holy Spirit's alive in me, I'm going to recognize when I don't, apologize, Get up and keep going and strive to do it better. Verse 21, Colossians 3 now talks to dads. 
So whether you're a dad currently, or, or your children have left home, or your grandfather, or you're going to be a dad hopefully one of these days, this is just a good verse for all of us to be reminded what is God's will for dads. Here it is. Fathers, do not promote, provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And if you go back to Ephesians, he says a very similar things that fathers are not to provoke your children to anger. Chapter 6, verse 4. Ephesians 6, 4. It's always good to compare Scripture with Scripture, especially here when you have the same author writing under the same Holy Spirit. Not surprising that a lot of his wording is almost identical. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. There's so many ways we can do that as a dad, and we are commanded not to do that. So gentlemen, just to be clear, men are responsible and accountable according to Ephesians and according to Colossians and according to 1 Peter and the flow of the Bible. We are responsible that our families are financially provided for. We are responsible that our family is in a Bible teaching church, attending regularly, praying together, getting involved in that local church. We're responsible according to the text Let's get, just, just get a little more practical, that our family is being careful with the internet, and some of that needs to be our example. A little bit of a shock, how many grown men spend a lot of time on video games and stuff? We need to be showing responsibility and also showing and helping our kids and our teens with boundaries with social media. A lot of toxic garbage, obviously, that doesn't even need to be said out there, Men, dads, we need to be responsible for making sure we are protecting our home, even when it comes to social media, and responsible that we're evangelizing our children and discipling our children and teaching them doctrine and teaching them the things of God and not just hoping they get it at youth group and hoping they get it in Sunday school. We have fantastic youth ministry here. We have fantastic children's ministry here, but that is not a replacement for mom and dad according to the Bible. And men, some of us need to step up. And we're just hoping that our kids get it at church. That's not enough. And we need to own that. One other thing before we move on from here, and that is this. It's important to understand that the Bible's teaching in Ephesians and in Colossians here about the husband as head of the wife, husband as head of the home, also applies to the church, according to Paul. In his letters, 1 Timothy and Titus, the role of ruling elder and teaching pastor, teaching elder, is restricted to men, and it's because of the headship issue. The Bible affirms women in all sorts of roles in the local church. I'm thankful for the number of women, very capable women, that are highly involved in our church and on my staff. But the Bible then, 1 Timothy and in Titus, says the role of ruling elder, teaching elder, is restricted to a man because of the issue of authority. And if just to bring clarity, one passage, 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. Again, this is to all of us, God's word to all of us. A woman, Paul writes, should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. He's talking in the context of a local church. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So what's, let me ask, logic, what's his justification here? Genesis. He goes back to a theological reason. Some on the left, some liberal New Testament scholars have said, oh, well, that's because 
relationships were being abused in Ephesus. That's where Timothy lived. And so Paul wanted to correct that and suggested this. Paul never roots this into what was going on at that moment in Ephesus. He roots it in creation. He goes back to Genesis. He doesn't say because relationships are messed up here in Ephesus, therefore only men should be in leadership in a local church. No, he says men should be the ones leading and teaching because Genesis, Adam was created first. All right, with that, let's go to God's role for children. Here it's very clear. Also in Ephesians, we're going to go to chapter 6 for a minute. So put, again, a bookmark over there. First Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. Children, young people, teenagers, if you live under your parents' roof, listen up. Here it is. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Not a lot of ambiguity in that. Now, obviously, let me say, I raised kids. I understand dialogue, and I understand conversation, and the need for it increases as a child gets older. I get that. How much there is allowed and how deep you go and how much you explain obviously is going to change. But a lot of parents allow way too much dialogue way too early with their kids and toddlers. The child is commanded to obey mom and dad. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, it's interesting. Again, it's tied back into an earlier text. Here it is, the Ten Commandments. By the way, we're going to start a series on the Ten Commandments in January. Take one Sunday for every commandment. Children, Ephesians 6.1, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. What's the promise? That it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. So young people, kids, if your parents allow dialogue, depending on your age and all that, the point is this, when the dust is settled and mom and dad have made a decision, your responsibility is to obey and, the New Testament adds, do it with respect. And if there's not respect, then there is to be discipline. And let me just say something here. Becky and I taught a parenting class this last winter. And I'll say again what we emphasize there. One of the biggest dividing factors with young couples is not being on the same page when it comes to discipline. It is imperative, friends. Couples, it's imperative. Mom and dad are on the same page when it comes to discipline. Otherwise, you're going to undermine each other and you're going to undermine God because there's going to be a discordant message given. One of my favorite classics, Dare to Discipline by James Dobson, written years ago, been updated multiple times, but it still stands as a classic when it comes. If you're raising children and you have not bought this and dipped into it or read it as a couple, I would highly encourage that. James Dobson, Dare to Discipline. Here is a salient paragraph. Children thrive best in an atmosphere of genuine love, undergirded by reasonable, consistent discipline. In a day of, now remember, he's writing this in the early 70s. In a day of widespread drug use, sexual immorality, vandalism, and violence. Sounds like today's headlines. We must not depend on the hope to fashion the critical attitudes we value in our children alone, hope alone, or just hope by itself. This unstructured approach, and then he says, which was tried in the 60s and 70s. And the outcome has been discouraging. 
permissiveness has not only been a failure, it has been a disaster, close quote. And there's been so much written on that. Lastly, and secondly today, relationships now outside the home. Paul's going to step outside the context of the home and talk about relationships to those in authority outside the home. And this is now in verses 22 down through verse chapter 4, verse 1. And let me just say up front, obviously one of the problems with this section is in English translations in Western culture, it uses the word slavery in a fairly positive light. And that is a, culturally that is a hang up for a lot of, rightly so, because our concept of slavery is not just America, it was also in the UK and I'll say in Brazil, which imported just about as many slaves. That is a clouding factor when it comes to this text. And granted, that's a fair clouding factor. However, let me just say this. Slavery in Britain and America and Brazil often had very little in common with chattel slavery, as we know. There are overlaps. There are cruel masters. There's cruel employers. It's all that. Okay. But there are some differences. Let me just announce a couple in case you're not familiar. Slaves in the Roman Empire often had the same exact social status as their owners or their masters. In fact, it was often said if you saw two people walking down the street and one of them was a master and one was a slave, you couldn't tell the difference. And if you're wondering, is this really the word slave? It is. It's the Greek word doulos. It is actually the word slave. Slaves could also own property in the Roman Empire and they could even own their own slaves. Most slaves were set free before they were 30 and surprisingly to many, many people sold themselves into some kind of indentured servitude or slavery to get their own Roman citizenship eventually. So there are similarities. I'm not trying to gloss over what we did that was extremely shameful as a nation with, the, with Britain and Brazil and other countries. But nonetheless, Paul is talking about those in authority. The principle here, he's using this more as an illustration, but he's talking about, that's what you want, you want to get to the principle. What's he getting here? When we're under authority of somebody else outside of the home, that's his point here. And so in our own cultural setting, this could be employer-employee, it could be a household servant. When we were in India for a summer, we lived with a family, a, God, a Christian family. In fact, he was chairman of the board for prison fellowship of all of India. We lived with them for the summer. And they had household servants. They were sort of a blend of employee and indentured servant. It apply with something like that. But again, it applies to a wide range of situations, whether it's teachers, supervisors, bosses, elected officials, authority outside the home that I am under. That's what Paul is getting at here. And he says, verses 22 to 25, let's hear what he says. So bond servants, obey or slaves in everything, those who are your earthly masters. And then he adds this, not by way of eye service, says in the ESV, meaning when you know they're watching, <laughs> as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily is for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So the first group he addresses is those who are under authority. Remember, Paul is writing to many who were in slavery and had non-Christian masters. He's not just writing to people who had nice masters. He's writing to people in, without any qualification. 
And he says, verse 22, obey them in everything. Obey them in everything. Not so much because of the person themselves, but they are part of God's authority structure. And to show a lack of respect or to disobey a master or a supervisor or a boss or elected official or a teacher goes contrary to the word of God, unless we've been told to do something immoral or illegal. That's obviously a caveat that has to be added. Then secondly, he talks to those in authority. So if you have any role in authority in our culture, supervisor, your boss, your elected official, teacher, school administrator, employer, here's our marching orders. Masters, treat your bondservants justly, fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. So to those under authority, make sure you're obeying because God is watching, not just because human beings are watching. Let me give you a really practical example that you will all immediately own because we're all guilty. When you're driving down the interstate, having a great day, and suddenly you notice an unmarked police car, what do you do? We all do the same exact thing. We immediately slow, you can, and you can often tell they're coming because all of a sudden you see taillights going on for no, no reason up, up in front of you, right? And so, now, I have many sins. One of them is not generally speeding. In fact, my wife's often telling me, speed up. I drive usually a little slower because everyone then ends up going around me and I don't have to fight for position. But even, I've noticed even when I'm below the speed limit or at the speed limit, when I instinctively see a police officer, I still hit the brake. It's just that it's in nature like, uh-oh. We're to be God-honoring and obedient whether we know somebody's watching or not. Whether a boss is watching or not, an employer is watching or not, a teacher is watching or not, a principal is watching or not, we're doing it for the Lord if we know Christ. And that's Paul's point. All right, for our summons this morning, I want to turn it towards married couples on purpose, and I'm going to take our summons from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. So here's our summons. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Here we are told point blank that it is God's will that we fulfill our role. That's the best way we can contribute to a godly marriage, godly church, godly culture. Ephesians 5.33. Here's our summons. Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and the wife sees that she respects her husband. Here we're told point blank to fulfill our roles in marriage. If you're, if you're bristling at your role, you're not fulfilling it, as God says. The only way this works as God intended is both husband and wife, first of all, are genuine born-again Christians. They know Christ. They've surrendered to him. They're cherishing Christ. They treasure him as Lord, and they're obeying his commands. And then they're seeking to fulfill their God-given role. Otherwise, it leads to something Emerson Egridge says in his book, Love and Respect, it leads to something that's a vicious circle. So he says you have the love and respect principle. Some of you have heard of it. It's a very helpful concept. What is it? It says this, that when a, when a wife feels loved and treasured, she naturally wants to respect her husband. And that when a husband feels honored and respected, he naturally wants to love his wife. The love and respect cycle. He says when that starts going backwards, he calls it the stupid cycle because what happens is it becomes stupid, it becomes vicious, and it becomes extremely destructive. 
And when husbands and wives do the opposite and then it feeds on each other, it becomes toxic. But when a husband and wife step in and fulfill the role that God has given, even if it's completely against the cultural narrative, ladies and gentlemen, young people understand, it creates a healthy marriage. Healthy marriage creates healthy churches and healthy churches help impact a dark, decaying culture. That is God's promise. And so God has spoken. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and the book of Colossians and how practical it is. We understand some of this is very offensive right now in our cultural narrative, but we also understand that our current cultural narrative is brand new on the world stage and that we have those in authority, Republican and Democrat, doesn't matter, who are seeking to redefine things they have no business redefining and in such are in rebellion against what you have said. May we who name Christ be gracious, be loving, but be steadfast and immovable. Help us to preach the gospel well with our lips and to live it well with our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.